0: Okay, hope I'm doing this right. <laughs> I think I did it. Is there a red light on? Yeah. Okay, you're good. Yay, okay. Never had to do that before. Hi, everyone. Hi. How is everybody? <laughs> this is weird. Um, well, if you haven't already been sick of having me up here and seeing my face all the time, you get a little bit more of me for tonight and next week. <laughs> um, I'm really excited. I think it's a great privilege to be able to walk us through Jonah because I love this book. Like I'm obsessed with this book and I know that sounds so nerdy to some of you and I'm just gonna own that. (laughs) Um, If you know me really well, you know that nothing gets me as excited as the Old Testament. And so I'm just gonna say like I am a card carrying Bible geek. So (laughs) that's just where we're at. Um, but I love this book. It's truly one of my favorite books in the Old Testament and I love studying it and so I think it's a great privilege to be able to talk about it tonight. And I kind of feel like I'm on a little bit of a rescue mission to save this book from our kids' stories in Sunday school. Um, how many of you watched VeggieTales as a kid? Raise your hand. Woo! <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> See, we are the VeggieTales generation. I really believe that. And so um, when you think about Jonah, what's your immediate association? Like when I say Jonah and the whale. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I, I cannot make this up. Today, I was talking about how I need to rescue the book of Jonah from things like Veggie Tales, and that's John's favorite kids' movie. So, sorry, John. It is great. Nothing against Veggie Tales. But I feel like, you know, we grow up with these stories, and when kids' media and books and movies talk about it just being Jonah and the whale, we get a really watered down version of what this book is. And I really believe that, like, this is an adult book. You cannot understand the book of Jonah and what it truly means as a kid. And so if you're expecting that I'm gonna be talking a lot about a whale today, I'm sorry (laughs) to say that you're wrong. And I'm sorry if I'm spoiling your favorite kid's story when I say this, but the fish is only mentioned in like two to three verses in the whole book. So my first point that I wanna get out of the way is, the fish is not the thing. The whale is not the thing. (laughs) Um, I think that we probably come to this book with a lot of preconceived notions and our ideas of what this book is. And so I just want to take a second to kind of clear out the clutter, clear out what you think you know, come with fresh eyes, with a fresh lens. And the first thing that we need to address to do that is to say that the fish is not the thing. Um, (laughs) That like the scriptures are not to entertain us. It's not to just give us a nice like neatly packaged story. Um, the point of the scriptures is to show us who Jesus is, who God's character is, and what he's doing in his people and through his people. And um, so whatever this book is about, it's trying to accomplish that. Um, The other thing that I want to say is that the historicity of this book can sometimes be troubling to us. Um, Historicity is just a fancy word for historical accuracy, and so I think a lot of us come to this book and feel like, okay, he gets swallowed by a fish and he's in there for three days and he gets vomited up, and do I really have to believe this? Like, is this really true? And then there's those of us who are on the other side saying, of course it's true. Um, There are Orthodox Christian scholars on both sides of the spectrum, like Bible-believing, I believe in the Trinity, I believe in Jesus, scholars um, who say it's more like a parable and also scholars who say this is historical truth, this is exactly what happened. No matter where you fall. Um, and. If you have questions, I'd love to talk to you about it some other time. Um, But I think that no matter where you fall on that spectrum, there is something else here. But I just want to say, like, I would love it if we could just set the historicity aside because I think it is so easy to start thinking, like, okay, is this a parable? And then people are like, no, that means you don't believe in miracles. You're getting to theological liberalism. And we're just, we're going to stop that. Like, the, so one, the whale, unfortunately, is not the point of the book. And two, No matter whether this is a historical account, there's something for you here. And I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised. And Jesus talks about Jonah in the New Testament. And when he talks about Jonah, um, he talks about it more as like a symbol of what's going to happen to him. You know, Jonah gets swallowed by the whale. And after three days, he gets spit up. And that's like Jesus rising after three days. So Jesus doesn't come in one way or the other either. but I really think that like, this book has so much for us. And so if we can just clear out all the clutter and come with a fresh lens um, and let this book shape us, I think it's going to be really good. So are you with me? Are we good? OK. Let's open to Jonah chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to look there. If you don't, you can pull it up on your phone, whatever you want. Um, OK. So right away, this is a surprising book. I think we're gonna be surprised. There's already a couple surprises here and I wanna tell you about them. So number one, um, who are the Ninevites? God's calling Jonah to go to the Ninevites. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. I know we've talked about Assyria this semester, but if you don't remember or don't know, Assyria is like the big bad empire at the time. Um, And they are enslaving people, they are conquering everybody's land. They're brutal, brutal people, like really scary. (laughs) And the Israelites, like this is their enemy number one. The people they like the least, like just to be blunt, they had a habit of like skinning leaders alive and then deporting their people. Like that's how brutal they were. So the Ninevites are not a nice (laughs) people. And so God's calling Jonah to basically his people's least favorite country, and saying, go there. Um, The second surprise is that this book starts just like all the other prophets. Um, If you have your Bible and you flip to the next page, to the book of Micah, the first verse says, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. That sounds a whole lot like, now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, right? If we flip back to Isaiah, same thing, like it says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. So the author is starting with a phrase that's supposed to trigger in your head, like, oh, I'm reading a book of the prophets. It's like a convention. They just kind of all tend to start this way. But <laughs> right after he does that, he subverts our expectations because we think that this is going to be like all the other prophets who are writing books where it's the word of God spoken through the prophet, but this is a book like no other, where it's the word of God about the life of a prophet. So that's the second surprise. And what's even more surprising is that when God says, go to Jonah, he runs in the opposite direction. That's not what a man of God's supposed to do, right? That's not what a prophet's supposed to do. When God says, "Hey Jonah, go," Jonah flees in the opposite direction. Um, right from the beginning, we are supposed to be sensing, like, "Okay, this is not how going how I expect it to." So he flees to Tarshish. He runs away from God and he goes to Tarshish. This is supposed to be funny. And I don't think it is to us, because we don't know what Tarshish is. <laughs> um, basically, you know how we say like, somebody's going to Timbuktu, or like, <laughs> going to the moon, things like that. Like the farthest place that you can think of in the known world, that's what Timbuktu was to them. So God was calling Jonah to go east to Assyria. And he said, I'm gonna go as far west as we know about, like as far as I can away from where you told me. (laughs) So the Hebrew leaders, just like you did, would be laughing because that's insane. Like God says, hey, Jonah, I have this mission for you. And Jonah says, no. I'm going to go to the end of the world to disobey what you're saying. So this is not going how we think. This book is satirical. I think that's something that we wouldn't expect. I think that a lot of us don't know that our Bible contains humor and irony and satire until somebody tells us to look for it and then you see it everywhere and this book is full of it. authors basically setting up all of these stereotypes, these stock characters, like Jonah, who's supposed to be the prophet, the man of God, and you think, okay, I know who a prophet's supposed to be and I have a set of expectations for what a prophet's going to do and then he acts nothing like that. (laughs) We're going to see these sailors, these pagan sailors who are polytheists and we think we know how they're going to act and they act nothing like we think they're going to act. We see the Ninevites who are the big bad scary evil people (laughs) and we think we know how they're going to act and they act nothing like that. So that's the satire. And these are the things that are kind of underneath the surface that we have to do a little bit of legwork to understand, um, like the Hebrew people would. Um, But let's keep reading. So then, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and cried out to their god, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laden down and was fast asleep. Another surprise. All of these sailors are so spiritually attuned. They know that this storm is happening and it means that somebody, some divine power is not happy with us. And the man of God, where is he? He's asleep. Not paying attention. So they decide they have to do something about it. They go and they wake him up and they decide to cast lots and they see, oh, it's Jonah's God who's responsible for this. And so they go up to Jonah in verse nine. Um, so in verse eight, he, they ask him like, what are you doing? Where are you from? What's your occupation? why is this happening to us? (laughs) Like, you're responsible for this, so you better tell us what the heck is going on. And then in verse 9, he has the audacity to say, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I don't really think that he seems like he's fearing God. (laughs) Like, this is, I mean, I think that if you feel a little bit of hypocrisy there, you're right. And the sailors feel it, too, because he told them that he's running away from God. And so this is shocking. Like, Jonah's fleeing as far as he can in the opposite direction. He's hightailing it to Tarshish. And then they say, what's your story? And he says, well, I fear God. It's like, but you're not... (laughs) clearly you're not fearing God. (laughs) And he also says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, as he's trying to flee the God of heaven on the sea, as if that would work, right? So there's just, like, the things that Jonah is doing are obviously not matching up with what he's saying. So we keep reading, and we see, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows." Here it is, (laughs) and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So they throw him overboard, and the man of God, who's not being super faithful, we're a little bit disappointed in how he's acting, but the sailors This is a great moment for them. I mean, what you're expecting from them is that they're like polytheists, and they're not going to get with the program. They don't know who Yahweh is. They don't worship this God. But what do they do? They start praising him right away, and they fear the Lord exceedingly, which Jonah isn't doing, and they offer a sacrifice to the Lord and make vows. The pagan sailors are worshiping God when Jonah is not. Another surprise. So we get this prophet who we completely expect to be a model, and then he's the least faithful character that we see in this whole story. His name, Jonah, means dove. We associate that with like peace. You know. After the ark, they send out the dove, um, and he's the son of Amittai. His father's name means faithfulness. So his name is literally dove son of faithfulness. And he's not being faithful at all. And it is so easy for us to look at this story and go, Jonah, what are you doing? (laughs) To start feeling superior, to start laughing at him because it is funny. But that's precisely the trap of this book, because fundamentally, this book is supposed to be a mirror reflecting back on us. We are supposed to read this and be feeling superior and laughing at Jonah and then, oh wait, oh, that's me. Um, I think the closest thing I can think of to compare this to is like, you know, those action movie scenes where the, the good guy's chasing the bad guy and then all of a sudden he sees the red sniper laser like on his chest. That's the feeling we're supposed to have. Like We think that we're seeing this bad guy, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm the one in trouble. (laughs) The laser's pointing at me. Um, This is supposed to be a mirror, and it's supposed to reflect back at us. Um, We are supposed to see some of our own worst tendencies in here, pride, hard-heartedness, judgment, small-mindedness, and an inability to grow and change and let God kind of explode your categories and do things that are beyond your understanding. We see all of that in Jonah, but all of that is in us. So this is a book that seems like a nice fairy tale story, and then all of a sudden it's a gut punch. But it's really good for us. (laughs) I think we need this. Um, Lest we think that we're off the hook if we're believers, We're not. (laughs) Jonah is a prophet, right? He's a man of God. He believes in Yahweh. He's committed his life to Yahweh. His whole occupation is serving Yahweh, and he is still being unfaithful. And so, we might think that we were like bought into this whole God thing just because we're believers. And then here's this book saying, listen, sometimes you like Jonah have glaring areas of your life where you are not getting God's vision. You have your own vision and you're living into that. Um, I think it's easy for us to compartmentalize areas of our life and our faith from other parts, like it's easy for us to say, God, you get this part and I'm gonna go to the table and I'm gonna go to church on Sundays and I'll worship and I'm gonna read my Bible, but you don't get this part. Jesus, you are not welcome here. This part is reserved for me because I don't like what you say about this area. And that's exactly where Jonah is. I mean, why does Jonah run? Seriously, I think that we assume that it's just because he's afraid. And, and he has every right to be afraid. I would be so scared. Like, this is kind of the equivalent of like, it's World War II and God says, go parachute into Nazi Germany and say, down with the Third Reich. Like, that's kind of what's happening. I mean, this is scary. And so he has reason to be afraid, but it's not just fear. It's not just fear. There's something else here. Not to spoil it, but in chapter 4, verse 2, this is what he says to God. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting therefore from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is running because he knows that God is going to find a way to bring his grace and his mercy to these people that he hates through their repentance. And he doesn't want a happy ending for his enemies. It's not just fear. He doesn't like God's vision. He has a vision for his life and his prophetic career and his own picture of what a good life and a good world and good societies looks like and this isn't it. It doesn't include this thing that God called him to do. Being the instrument of God's mercy towards your people's greatest enemy probably isn't a great way to win friends. And I think that that's what he's feeling. It doesn't go over well in his head. But this is the root of disobedience. For me, I know this. I feel this. It is simultaneously possible for me to say, I love you, God, and also possible to say, I will not do this thing that you're asking me. How often do I find myself doing this? Saying, I love you so much, but you don't get this from me. And that's where Jonah's at. Um, God is asking Jonah to participate in this amazing act of his grace. But here's the tragedy. And here's the biggest thing that I want you to take away from this. Jonah thinks that he is running for his life because he thinks that he is running towards the best possible version of how things could go. He thinks that he is running for his life. But the tragedy of this is that he is running away from life which is God's vision. Like, think about what God is asking Jonah to do. It's easy for us to, I think, especially if you are not a fan of the Old Testament, or if you grew up with a picture of an angry God who you think is just kind of tapping his toe at us all the time and is displeased with everything we do, I think it's kind of easy for us to roll our eyes and say like, oh, there goes God again, like causing storms and throwing lightning bolts at his people and like assume that he's just mad. And that's why he's going after Jonah like this. But where's his heart? He's trying to use Jonah as an instrument for this amazing beautiful act of his grace and mercy and Jonah's not listening and so God's going after him and saying like I know you're running but come back to me turn around come see what I'm doing like this isn't God just being angry and acting up this is God chasing after Jonah and trying to use him to chase after the Ninevites it's evidence of his grace and his unfailing love that just won't quit He's inviting Jonah to step into a story that's broader and bigger than he could fathom. And the same is true for us. We find ourselves in the same position because we behave in a way that makes sense to us and our vision of what a good life looks like. But we have a savior who steps in and says, follow me, because there's a whole bunch of things that you're doing that you think are life, but they're not life at all. We have a savior who says, I died on the cross to be the faithful person that you could never be, and to bear the cumulative weight of all of the bad decisions you made because you were living your vision, not my vision. That's the God that we're following. and so. It's competing visions of life. And when God calls his people, when he calls us, he calls us to entertain his vision instead of ours. So I just want to challenge you to think, what is the Nineveh in your life that you are running from that makes you want to hightail it to Tarshish and get as far away from the presence of God as you can? You may feel like you're running for your life because God's ruining your fun, or you don't like this part of God, or you don't understand his vision, but you're actually running from life because you won't give up your vision and trade it for his. I think we find ourselves in this position every day when we decide whether or not we're going to follow Jesus. And when I come to him and I say, I want to follow you, that means I have to give up my vision of the good life, and I have to let it die. It has to die, (laughs) and I have to take on his instead with faith and trust that his vision is always, always better, that what he is inviting me to is abundant, true life, that he sees things that I can't see, that he knows what's behind and what's ahead and what's going on around me that I don't know, and that his vision is always, always better. I have to trust that when I stop running, there's true abundant life waiting for me. So maybe for you, it's forgiving somebody who's really hurt you, and you just can't forgive them yet, or maybe it's giving up a bad habit, or maybe it's trying to surrender something that you desperately want to hold on to. I don't know what it is. But as we move back into a time of worship, I think that It would be great if we could take this opportunity to be honest with ourselves. And I've never done this before. I want to invite the band up. (laughs) Usually that's me. (laughs) Um, As we move back into this time of worship, I think if we can be honest with ourselves, all of us, like I really, I kind of guarantee it. There is an area of your life where you want to run in the opposite direction. But if we let Jesus go there, if we take this area that we try and box him out of and we stop running and we say, you are actually welcome in this space, you're gonna be met with so much grace and you are going to be met with real life and you are going to get to participate in the big, beautiful, crazy, unfathomable acts of his mercy and his grace that you don't even know what they look like, that you could never anticipate and you could never plan. And he wants you to be a part of it. So I want you to get that thing, that area, that person in your mind and ask Jesus to let it die, let your vision die, and for him to speak his life to you. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you so much for your compassion, for your grace, for the big things that you are doing for your goodness on this earth that we cannot fathom or see. And for the fact that you are so good that you want us to participate in it. God, it is so much easier for us to seek our own will, to seek our own ways, and to live in this vision we have for what good life looks like. Would you help us humble ourselves and trust you more? That your ways are always, always better. That your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God, I just pray that this would be a time of surrender, that the areas of our life where we wanna box you out, that we would let you in, that the things that want, make us wanna flee from your presence, that we would let you into them, and that you would change us, that we would become more and more aware of how much better it is to just follow you, how much better it is to trust you, how much better it is to accept your vision instead of ours. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.